Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson as we discuss The Third Man for our 12th episode. In 1948, famed British author Graham Greene convinced producer Alexander Korda to send him to Vienna to write a screenplay set in the desolation of Austria's capital. Through his research and lived experience, Greene conceived of a story that would provide the basis for the third man. As Vienna is occupied by the Allied powers following World War II, American author Holly Martins, played by Joseph Cotton, arrives to visit his friend Harry Lyme. As Holly searches for his friend, he soon learns that Harry Lyme is dead and allegedly was part of the city's thriving black market. The British major Calloway, enacted by Trevor Howard, wishes for Holly to leave the city, but the American is intent to prove his deceased friend innocent of all charges. Ineptly conducting his own investigation, Holly is led to Harry's lover, Anna Schmidt, played by the Italian actress Alida Valley and slowly stumbles his way into an understanding of the horrors and regret of post-war Vienna. Green's script offers psychological complexity and emotional realism, while the visuals of director Cale Reed and cinematographer Robert Krasker interweave the grim reality of decay with the surreal and impressionistic visuals of film noir. The cast and crew worked through a grueling production schedule, complete with heavy involvement from producer Korda and American mogul David O. Selznick, to create a film universally received as a classic of cinema. Released in England in 1949 and the U.S. in 1950, The Third Man has influenced countless movies and filmmakers, sealing its place in film history. Released by the Criterion Collection initially on DVD in 1999, the British classic was reissued as a two-disc special edition DVD by the collection in 2007 and subsequently on Blu-ray in 2008. Join Matt and me as we search for the third man on tonight's episode. So, Matt, there's the old saying, they don't make them like they used to. And if ever there's a movie to cement that statement as being true, I think the third man would have to be one of them. You just don't see movies like this anymore. You see certainly movies that imitate it and strive to be like it, but you don't actually see a movie that comes together quite like this one did. So I know it's a film that's of particular interest and importance to you, Uh, so I'm going to kick it over to you here and just have you open up with your thoughts of what you think about it. Well, it's hard to know where to start with this one. I mean, it's definitely one of my favorite movies, uh, I'll say that. But it's it's a classic in every sense. But yeah, as you said, certainly don't make it or make films like this anymore. And and just the... um, the economy of this film, I think, is amazing. I mean, there's really not a wasted shot or a wasted scene. Uh, the film, it, its pacing is really ahead of its time. Um, I, I guess just I'll kind of speak to the nostalgic quality of this film for me. I, I first saw this kind of when I was starting to get into film very seriously, uh, kind of the early days of DVD, I guess. Uh, but I was still checking out VHS tapes from uh, the library pretty regularly. And around this time I first saw seven samurai. I think it was probably a, a two or three VHS set for that film. Uh, of course, cause it's very long, 
but um third man was was on the shelf as well and i i picked it up and i had heard about it and uh i knew it was an important film and had an interview i think on the the tape with with peter bogdanovich uh, had a nice little uh intro but i was just completely captivated by the film i i it was really unlike anything I had seen at that point. Uh, and I must've watched that tape. Uh, I think I lost count how many times I watched the film. So certainly when it came out. So you're one of those guys when we rented old VHS tapes that you're the reason why the tape yeah. was worn out and we couldn't watch a movie. <laughs> well, in the case of the third man, yeah. If anybody uh, got a copy of that from, from the library, uh, the tracking was probably all messed up because of me, but uh, yeah, it was just something that was, extremely rewatchable and even at, at a younger age I could see why this this film was revered but at the same time I felt like it was a film a lot of people didn't really know about outside you know film fan circles you don't really hear it mentioned with a lot of the great classic films of that period uh, among kind of the general movie going public it's not something that's as notable as Casablanca or even Citizen Kane in, in the eyes of many. So uh, I'm glad it's getting attention. I feel like more attention has been paid to it uh, these days. So that's probably the best place to start is just kind of my, my memories of, of seeing the film for the first time. It definitely, it's a classic. Those who know film know it, and it does not have the kind of reputation of Gone yeah. the Wind, Casablanca, Lawrence of Arabia, whatever it is, uh, I think probably because it's much more dark yeah. than those films. Uh, none of those films, not that they don't have their own richness to them, not that there's, Lawrence of Arabia certainly has a great deal of depth and complexity and a very ambiguous ending, but this one is just a very grim confrontation with certain realities of life. And I remember seeing it, I probably saw it roughly around the same time, I guess, Matt, that you saw it. I think I was 15. I was a freshman in high school when I saw it. I watched it on Turner Classic Movies and had really just heard about it because of its cinematography. Didn't know much about the story, but was at that time very much fascinated with cinematography and wanted to see all these great examples of how cinematography uh, can be elevated to an art form. So I watched it for that purpose. And I suppose when I first saw it, I didn't necessarily appreciate all the themes of it, but I definitely could tell there was a lot more going on than just some neat visuals. And maybe what we could uh, start out with our conversation here, because this is a very uh, interesting movie in that it, I think, raises a lot of questions about just the nature of cinema. And particularly, I want to talk about this idea of it being film noir, film noir being the phrase that was given to actually primarily American films after World War II in the late 40s by French critics. They talked about the dark film, these crime pictures, and certain elements that seemed to be recurring in American movies at that time. But obviously here we have a British film that has it. There's other films that have it. Um, the question I think is worth asking, is film noir a style or is it a genre? Because if we can establish that, that helps us, I think, have a certain window into the third man of how we make sense of this particular work. Uh, so what are your thoughts just on this idea of film noir? Is it a style or is it a genre? That's a tough question to answer. I mean, I I guess I see it more as a stylistic choice than a genre because you can apply the the conventions of film noir from a visual standpoint to many different genres. So 
Uh, I think of Blade Runner, uh, for example, certainly a science fiction film, but very much a film noir. So uh, you, you certainly have the um, the plot elements or character elements in a film that make it a film noir. So the femme fatale, uh, the protagonist that's in over his head. Uh, but beyond that, of course, you do have those visual elements. So uh, lots of shadow, lots of darkness, uh, uh, you know, but that spills over into the themes of the story as well. So usually uh, kind of getting into the criminal underbelly. Uh, so the the story reflects the visuals and vice versa. So I, I would lean toward saying that it is a, a stylistic choice or a style versus uh, a genre. I'm inclined to agree. I think that it's hard to think of it as a genre because it can encompass so many different things. And it's, I mean, I think the the term film noir is used very loosely and there's lots of debates and people talk about neo-noir versus yeah. film noir. And, you know, I think people get into the weeds on some of those questions. But it strikes me as being more of a style that is used to great effect in a certain kind of genre Predominantly, it's dealing with gangster pictures or it's dealing with crime. Uh, but as you noted, Blade Runner being a great example of a of science fiction genre piece that is clearly taking those visual elements, those stylistic elements of film noir and incorporating them. So I would look at this as being film noir as a style, not as a genre. It really is kind of a movie unto itself. And it, maybe it's, it's worth thinking of it as post-war literature. Uh, we've actually, as I was getting ready for this podcast, Matt, I realized World War II is factored into a lot of our discussions, yeah, it has. actually. <laughs> uh, I mean, Phoenix was one of our first podcasts. That's clearly World War II. Uh, Ashes and Diamonds we did not that long ago. Uh, last month we had Odd Man Out, also by mm-hmm. Carol Reed. And you know, there's just this sort of shadow of it. And that's not to be unexpected because whenever historically there's major wars, there's always this processing that takes place afterwards and literature emerges trying to make sense of it so naturally cinema really coming into its own in the mid 20th century and being a great vessel of communication and artistic expression would be trying to respond to the realities of world war ii and so there's these just these natural uh overlapping of of, uh, circumstances the the war itself and then the blossoming of cinema at that particular time so it's it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, well, it's it's even I think the post-war literature is it's a way of examining ourselves. This massive event has happened, and what does it mean? And so it's a way of trying to express certain themes, certain ideas about society, about culture. And so this movie, to me, belongs into that genre. It's really not so much about crime. Uh, it's really about the aftermath of war. It's about a post-war world. And it's uh, it's celebrating or not celebrating, but depicting the nature of life as war has come to an end and a society starts to rebuild itself. So I think that's the key way to look at this story is to think of it as an urban documentation of the effects of war. Well, just as a, a quick tangent, I'll ask you, uh, for a film to qualify as a noir, does it have to have all these elements? Does it have to have the thematic elements we're getting at, the visual elements, because certainly people have, um, you know, applied this term to other films that maybe don't quite fit all those requirements. I I think of Chinatown or LA Confidential. People consider those noirs in many ways, and they are kind of devoid of of some of those um, 
typical, at least visual touchstones that we think of when, when, when we consider noir. If you're going to call it a genre, I think you have to say it does need to meet those requirements. But if you're going to call it a style, then I don't. So yeah. I, 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 you know, it depends, I guess, on who you're talking to. If you're, it sounds like for the both of us, we're thinking of it more as style, in which case yeah. these elements don't need to be there. Uh, they might traditionally make sense there, or you might traditionally employ this style in that a story that has those elements. But I don't think that they need to be there for it to be technically a noir. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would. I would agree. I mean, I, I think that's probably a good way to summarize it. Uh, so this is a, the other element of this film that I think is fascinating is to think about it uh, as a, also a refutation of auteur theory in filmmaking. Uh, auteur theory, of course, being very popular with the French New Wave, the uh, different critics like Truffaut and Bresson, uh, not Bresson, excuse me, Godard, uh, had this idea that each film has at its core a central author that's responsible for it. And typically it's associated with the director, although there's no reason it would have to be the director. It could be a producer, it could be a writer, it could mm-hmm. be an actor. But this movie, I don't think, could exist if only one person had been the one that made it. When you really study the production of The Third Man, you realize it's a happy accident. It's, it's the fact that nobody actually really got the movie they wanted to make up on screen that got us this incredible classic. Because if you look at each individual party, the movie they wanted to make wouldn't have been as good as the movie we wound up getting because they all had to jockey. You have big personalities. You have David O. Selznick, the producer of Gone with the Wind, and a massive figure in Hollywood who is imposing certain things on the production. You have Graham Greene's script and his ambitions and agenda with what he's trying to do. You have Carol Reed as his direction. You have the casting, particularly knowing just Orson Welles and his personality as an actor in the film. You have all these different elements and ingredients coming together, and I think it's the whole collaboration, no one really having the definitive authorial claim to this work that has allowed it to be what it is. Any thoughts on that? I would agree. It's truly a collaborative film, and and you could say it is really a clash of egos. I mean, you don't get the sense that there was necessarily... uh, kind of a synergistic relationship between these people. Uh, there, were, there were conflicts going on, especially with the ending of the film. I think Graham Greene wanted a happier ending. and But yeah, you have these towering figures in, in literature and entertainment really meeting uh, to create this film. So Graham Greene, of course, who um, just to see him write an original screenplay is a very exciting thing. And, of course, Orson Welles, is, his presence looms large over the film, not only on screen but off screen. And there was even a rumor for a while that he had directed portions of the film, but I think that's been debunked at this point. And uh, it, it's interesting that uh, the film came out as well as it did, considering all the clashing that was probably going on behind the scenes. And in a way, I, it kind of reminds me, I, I don't mean to keep bringing up Blade Runner, but... <laughs> It reminds me of some of the contentious uh, backstory to that film, too, and how how collaborative that ended up being and, and the end product really being more than the sum of its parts, even down to uh, well, Orson Welles helped to write the Cuckoo Clock speech and uh, Rutger Hauer, of course, helped write the, uh, the final speech at the end of Blade Runner. So uh, there, there's definitely um, an interesting parallel there. 
but it's it really is it's kind of a miracle on film i mean it it, it's really a film that could have only been made at this point uh to be the film that it is in terms of its power because of the locations because of the post-war climate so everything really aligns so the stars align to to make this work it's a classic example of art from adversity the struggle is what made it so great the fact that yeah. they had just the difficulty of shooting and being in the on location in Vienna, being in the sewers for the finale, that all was just a difficult shoot. And using the kinds of equipment they had back then made it difficult. And you know, it's just I think it's funny because the initial idea was that Holly Martin and Harry Lyme were supposed to be British people. That's how Graham Greene originally created it, and mm-hmm. it was Selznick that required that they be Americans. And so Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles were eventually cast for these parts. And I think it makes it all the more profound. You have these Americans coming into Europe, and it's right at the start of the post-war construction. And so, in a sense, you have a, a, a very subtle critique of Americans coming into Europe, not really knowing or understanding it, bumbling around, making a, kind of a bit of a mess and making their presence very obviously felt not necessarily getting what's happening or what has happened in Europe and now trying to restore it and try to prove themselves in Europe. So I think there's just something very fascinating about how it actually winds up serving thematic purposes with some of those decisions. Uh, you referenced the ending. It's one of the rare times that the producers wanted the dark, the sad ending, right? They did not want the happy ending. You know, This is the period of time where uh, a studio was shoehorning in a happy ending out of nowhere. And here was the author. It was Graham Greene, who's by no means exactly yeah. in his writing uh, a happy fellow uh, that has uh, wanted to put in the hopeful ending, which would have been just terrible if, if you have these characters get together, if you have Holly Martins and um, um, Anna get together at the end. It would have been just like, where did that come from? And so it's just, it's so fascinating to me how it all comes together. And all that fighting did wind up making for a terrific, terrific work. Well, and just the clash of of all these different nationalities is an important part of the film uh, from a thematic standpoint, definitely. So, you, I mean, it's at the end of the war. You have all these different sectors, uh, all these different uh, allied powers that are vying for a piece of the pie at the end of World War II. And... That spills over into the the secondary characters in the film as well, speaking different languages and without and subtitle. How, yeah, that's true. So, as a member of the audience, we're confused as well, and we're kind of thrown into the um, the mix with Holly Martin's into this really foreign territory. One interesting note, actually, on the lack of subtitles, um, I think the Third Man is streaming on Netflix right now, and if you turn on the subtitles it will actually subtitle the other languages as well in English. I tell you, Netflix, is... they just, they don't <laughs> respect the author's intent. <laughs> well, I was very, I, I, I don't know why that is. I, I thought that was interesting, I, which made me wonder, is there a version of the third man out there that was subtitled in English as well? well I, I know I, on, the, on the DVD, they have a special feature of those scenes where they provide the uh, subtitles of them for anybody who want to watch them, not in the actual movie itself, but, you could actually just watch all the scenes with the foreign languages and listen oh, to the okay. subtitles. I, so maybe they're taking I never from noticed there. that. Yeah, maybe they just use that same subtitle track. I never noticed that on the disc. But that's kind of a side note, I guess. 
yeah, but definitely it's it's important to the story to have this level of confusion right and and I, I think it's important that they also made the main characters american and, and part of that is of course to have american audiences relate to those characters better but uh, it does fit fit the uh, the point of the story the themes of the story in an important way well let's delve into those themes a little bit because there's a lot there i i, I don't know yeah. that we'll be able to do justice to all these themes because it's a film that when i go back to it i take something new each time from it yeah. Uh, it's just very rich. Um, let's focus maybe a little bit just on this character of Holly Martins. So he's the American author, writes these dime novel uh, westerns that just don't mean much and happens to have, I think, the one person in Europe uh, stumble upon him who's actually a fan of his work uh, with uh, the, the Sergeant <laughs> Payne, who, by the way, our very first ever M in the Bond universe. So that's right. Uh, so yeah. a neat little uh, film connection there. But Holly Martins obviously is it's such an interesting protagonist because he's not a hard edged cop like you might think of with film noir. He's not really a, a, up to the task. He's just he, he happens into everything and he doesn't actually really solve much. He spends most of his time on screen denying the truth. Right. The truth is that Harry Lyme was in the black market, that he was a part of this racketeering of um, penicillin where they would black market it, dilute it, and then sell it out with horrible consequences, which really did happen in Vienna. And he's defending his friend, saying, no, this couldn't possibly be the case. I'm going to prove everybody wrong. Uh, But contrary to all the evidence, right? And I think it's just, it's that stunning image. The first shot of him in Vienna as he's walking down the street, he walks underneath the ladder and it just says, this man's in for a lot of bad luck. And he doesn't even know it. He's just totally oblivious that he walked under the ladder. And so it's a fascinating idea for a protagonist because usually you want that protagonist to be strong. You want us to really root for them. And there's not a whole lot to root for in Holly Martins. He's just there. He, he just kind of seems like an agreeable enough fellow, but he's mostly self-absorbed. He's clearly an alcoholic. Uh, so it's just a fascinating uh, protagonist that ultimately I think it's it's a way of Green allowing us into uh, the the world where I guess heroes uh, have kind of been squeezed out after World War II. It's a very unconventional choice. Uh, again, kind of going back to the fact this film is really ahead of its time and. It echoes some of other Carol Reed's uh, work as well, just this idea of an outsider in over his head. And uh, we kind of saw that in Odd Man Out as well. But, yeah, his character is, it's very interesting because he, I mean, he comes across as kind of a dimwit initially, and maybe in some ways he is, but then you kind of realize that he's just so loyal to his friend and he's just trying to find any kind of traction in this foreign environment and the one familiar thing to him is Harry Lyme, his friend. And in a way he wants to, he doesn't want that image of, of his upstanding friend to be tarnished because I mean, this is, this is really his reason for being there. Right. And he, he is there to defend his friend despite all the evidence that is just slapping him in the face. So it's it's an interesting choice to to take someone who i mean by all outward appearances he he really should be more 
insight or more insightful in terms of what's going on, especially given that, okay, he's an author that implies some level of competence from, (laughs) from a logical standpoint, even though he may write pulp, uh, uh, Western novels, but just goes back to the idea that, okay, this is some, someone in over his head and he's lost. He's just trying to find any sense of familiar familiarity that he can cling on to. And that includes alcohol that includes women that includes, uh, you know, even a, an invitation to a literary meeting, uh, despite the fact that he's greatly in over his head, even in a venue like that. So uh, it's it's a unique choice for sure. Well, it's it's a mark of great writing and great directing how this character is conceived. Joseph Cotton gives a very fine performance, but I think a lot of the work was done for him in the conception of the character by Graham Greene, as well as a lot of the staging by Carol Reed. Uh, two things in particular that struck me, one was the scene where he uh, meets with Anna he goes to the uh, theater, he sees her, and then afterwards they're going to talk about Harry. And this the, the clumsiness of him sitting down but then having to get up because she's going to walk through. It, it just all these ways in which he's just shown to be physically awkward. Repeatedly, yeah. over and over again, he's shown to be physically awkward and getting in the way of things. And it just really is a masterful way of subtly staging this character so that we get that he is in over his head, as you've said. Uh, the other thing is, I think uh, it comes to that interesting name, Holly. Uh, now, this was not the original name that Green came up with for it. Again, this was Selznick's insistence. The initial name was going to be Rollo. And uh, he, uh, Gre- uh, Selznick told Green, absolutely not. That's just too ridiculous and absurd of a name, which I agree with. I don't think anybody would have liked that name or would have wanted to work as well. So Green comes up with the name Holly. And Holly winds up being a perfect counterpoint to Harry, right? Holly and Harry. Harry has such a masculine quality to it and such a strength just in saying it, right? Harry. And then Holly has a sort of lightness and it just sets you up. Whenever you hear him called Holly, you think of it, A, as kind of a feminine name and B, as just this light sort of evanescent name. And so it's an interesting way just the name can set up the character for you. And the the fact that he keeps going after Anna and <laughs> yeah, yeah, and his own friend's his, his funeral, advance. he's checking her out. <laughs> Just his advances toward her, as you said, are so clumsy, and so uh, they they come across as like like a cheap novelette, just like the the books that he writes, I suppose, and that's probably what informs his uh, his strategies for for trying to to meet women. But she is so far removed from from the situation that uh i mean she's obsessed with harry lime right and finding him and but just the idea that he's dead initially of course but holly is still there trying to knock down her door by god yeah i I have to say the character of anna in this is very nicely observed uh alita valley does a very fine job they purposely did not dress her up to be very glamorous uh, no. Which I think is a fair way of saying, you know, you're living in post-war Vienna. They're struggling to survive. She's not going to look like a bombshell from the Hollywood studio system. So she's a perfectly attractive young uh, young lady, but she's also very much a woman who you could tell is on hard times and is not having a great amount of means available to her. So very nicely observed. And her performance, the way she shows that tortured love, it's, it's a wonderful portrayal, I think, of... When you fall in love with a bad person, Harry Lyme is a bad person. There's no way around it. And she loves him, 
and can't really bring herself to see that or accept that. When she finds out he is alive, right, when Calloway tells her he's alive, uh, it's just very interesting how she says he's out there doing something right now. And you go, wow, this is a woman who's really, really tied herself into this man and is unable to see anything other than the the object of her love. Yeah, she's completely obsessed with with him and and the relationship that she had with him and it really reminded me too of of the um of kathleen and odd man out i mean there's kind of an echo there that that she is completely devoted to someone who whose future is doomed and even once she even when she learns about the horrible crimes that harry lyme has committed her devotion does not seem to waver, which, well, I mean, speaks to her character, I suppose. Uh, you could say in a, a, a positive or a negative way, probably more of a negative way. And Valley's performance, yeah, it delivers in every way. I mean, you see that that tortured look in her eyes. Uh, but it's not only the uh, the doomed romance that, that tortures her, it's just her circumstances in post-war Vienna and trying to have the paperwork to stay and trying to navigate the black market. So she is some, you know, someone that's facing hell from, from many different directions. And of course, Holly Martins is not concerned with any of that. (laughs) Doesn't even know how to handle it or make sense of it. (laughs) Well, he, yeah, he's woefully ignorant. And again, that's when he kind of comes across as a bit of a dimwit, but uh, it, it's it's a very interesting subtext when when the two of them are on screen because uh, as the, an audience member we know what's really going on in her mind and in her heart and and Holly of course is seeing what he wants to see and and his his version of um, of reality is is far removed from from what's really going on. You use the word subtext and that's a great word for this movie. I find it to be a truly profound work precisely because it wasn't necessarily setting out to be a profound piece of work. So many movies have this, the message movie, they're going to be the great anti-war film. They're going to be the great film about immigration or lost love or whatever it might be. And they have the sense of self-importance. This movie has no trace of ego in it. When you watch it, it's, it's a good entertainment but there is so much subtext that makes it so rich and flushes out so many ideas and so many themes. And the characters all feel like real people. Uh, Calloway is actually a character that I've really come to appreciate more and more. I think I probably pretty much wrote him off and didn't pay attention to him in the first viewings of this film. But now he's actually maybe my most favorite character of the entire cast because you see this yeah. complexity with him. At first, he's just hard-nosed, serious major in the British Army who wants to try to establish order. He's been given the task of figuring out the black market and bringing Harry Lyme to account for his crimes of selling the penicillin. Then you start to see how, no, there is a sense he cares about the plight of people. And he actually, you wonder, if Holly Martins hadn't showed up, what could he have done? He might have actually been able to do some real good. Uh, Because, you know, he was really attentive to the needs of people. He was really attentive to Anna. You see these character progressions that take place there and you see how he truly does want to help her and he wants to help this reestablish this city uh, that has been torn apart by war so i find him to be just a fascinating character as well and trevor howard 
it has a really nice, nice performance and some real fun, dry wit uh, that is in his performance, too. Yeah, he and uh, Holly Martins have this interesting little sparring Callaway or relationship. Callahan. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, those are great little interchanges between the two of them. They're constantly kind of taking shots at each other. And of course, Holly Martin sees Callaway as as kind of his main enemy initially because he's pursuing his friend and eventually becomes his his greatest ally by the end of the film. But uh yeah, Trevor Howard is just awesome. I mean, he's he he's great and his his character is very interesting because he he seems to be kind of a master of this chaotic environment where he he knows all the angles, he knows how to play them, and he knows the right time to play them. And as you said, he is trying to help. I mean, he tries to help uh, Anna's character, or um, Anna, by trying to kind of talk the the Russian official down in terms of, of taking her into custody or pursuing charges against her for her, her paperwork. And you can you can see in his eyes just the, the pain uh, that people have experienced under the uh the jackboot so to speak of harry lime and that little sequence when he's presenting all the evidence is is a powerful little scene that's really nicely edited as well mm-hmm. and by the end of it uh he's completely broken holly martin's i mean he it didn't take him long to to really cut through uh to his to his heart as well but yeah, he, he's he's in it for the right reasons. He's looking for the truth, but he's also willing to kind of play in those gray areas in in such a way that um, he hopes to affect the outcome in in, in a positive way. So, uh, definitely a complicated character. Yeah, he also I think um, I mean it's it's part of the brilliance of, of Green's script how they have him delve out that information he becomes very much an indispensable part for you and i the audience to be able to make sense of this world we need Mm -hmm. this character to introduce us to the black market to explain to us what's going on because we've never been there right so it's very helpful for just setting the stage for you and i to understand this movie and to understand what's really at stake here and i think the scene where he does finally take holly martin's into the hospital where the children are who have been either either died or have gone insane from the penicillin that was diluted is very effective. It's a very chilling scene, and you don't see a thing. That's what I love about this era. I mean, the, the, the idea of they don't make them like they used to. You don't see a thing other than yeah. Joseph Cotton's response, and yeah. that allows you then as the audience to imagine what he's looking at, and it's so much more chilling and more frightening than what would be could would be shown in just a close-up of a kid yeah it's always our imagination you know will always be worse than what we're actually seeing on screen well let's get back then to uh the final major cast player here orson wells uh i would have just come out and say it i'm not a big orson wells fan i i'm not uh he is man this guy won the lottery he made citizen kate at 25 (laughs) And after that, pretty much everybody just gave him a complete pass for the rest of his career. And he, not that he didn't have some other good movies, because he did, but man, there's a lot of crap. And yeah. 
And everybody just kind of just says, well, you know, whatever, mis- you know, misunderstood genius or something. No, no, the guy was really not that good uh, in all honesty. But when he was on, when he did get something right, he really got it right. And I'm convinced that Harry Lyme is, even though it's such, it's a tiny performance, maybe six minutes total of screen time uh, uh, yeah. there or something like that, six, eight minutes. But man, I think this is his best performance in his career. It's... Yeah, it's outstanding. I mean, what, I, I I struggle to kind of formulate thoughts with this this film in general, just because it kind of speaks for itself. But his shadow looms large, of course, over the entire film. Uh, not only as his character Harry Lyme, but just the presence of Orson Welles, of course, and the the reputation that comes with that. And when he is on screen, it's absolutely electric. And the uh, of course the scene in the Ferris wheel just one of the all-time great scenes and it's i mean what can you say it's it's (laughs) it i think everything that has that needs to be said about it has been said that is probably the greatest introduction of a character in movie history when he comes on and cotton is yelling at him doesn't know it's who it is right uh holly martin's is sitting there thinking somebody's following him but then you realize it's harry lime uh and you're just like whoa what but that smirk that charm that sort of yeah here i am uh, not apologetic about it, not, you know, any, I just, there's no, I don't know, there's so much you can read into that in performance, those few shots when he's finally introduced. And not a word is spoken either. It's just, oh gosh, that scene, it just is in my mind. You know, you just hope that you could, you could see something like that again in, in movies. Uh, but yeah, the Ferris wheel scene, as you said, Matt, that is one of the best scenes in movie history. I will regularly, when I'm trying to explain people how diegetic sound in film can be so effective, I regularly show that scene to people because yeah. it is so powerful. The sound effects of the creaking and of the moving of the compartment, it just creates this very nerve. And then when they open up the door, when Harry opens up the door and that little bit of wind comes in and the threat that it presents, how it works on you as the audience, it's just, it's just great filmmaking right there. It's great sound design. I'm always fascinated too at the at the tone of their um, their interchange on the the Ferris wheel because it's really the first time we see these two characters converse and they're supposedly very close friends, right? But it kind of immediately starts as kind of an adversarial conversation because I'm sure Harry Lyme realizes or knows very well that Holly Martins is caught up in in the hunt to find him. And Harry knows what he's done, and I suppose by this time he knows that Holly probably suspects that he's a criminal. But they, they don't talk like friends, right? I mean, he, he jumps on the – he kind of comes out of nowhere and, and prances up to the uh, the Ferris wheel, gets on board, and they're immediately into it. And Holly even fears for his life. So it's it's a very interesting dynamic between the two of them. You know, these are supposed to be friends, but they they certainly come across as enemies. Oh, he clearly was and, intending to kill Holly. Harry was going to kill him. Oh, yeah. And then he, yeah, yeah. he realizes, crap, I, there's no point in it because they found, they know I'm alive. So yep. killing him yep. will only confirm that I'm alive, right? So it's just yeah. it's an interesting, interesting exchange. And the two things I find so interesting about that scene, and this is all in the writing. Uh, it's very well delivered, well played, but... Uh, the the point that he's making is he's pointing down at all the people saying, if one of those dots stopped moving, would you, and I could give you 20,000 pounds for it, would you tell me 
that you wouldn't take it to keep my own money. Yeah. I just think it's such a a wonderful statement of how dehumanizing things got in the mid 20th century. And people were thought of as commodity. And so it's a very chilling portrayal of, of a new ideology that emerged at that point in time. And then the other is the question about faith that comes up when Holly Martins says you used to believe in God. And yeah. you know, the way he says it with such a sense of despair of who is this man? Who has he become? Uh, is, is such an interesting, interesting thing. And kind of almost, uh, I wonder to what extent is that green himself expressing a statement to the larger world? Yeah. Where, where is God? Didn't we believe in God? And what are we doing, right, at this point in time? So it's it's a powerful scene. I love to go back and I just I'll, I'll sometimes just sit down and watch just that scene. It's so good. Yeah, it, it cuts to the heart of, you know, just how the, the metaphysical has been kind of gutted from uh, from the world at that point. And, and you can even say that spills over into today. So it's, again, I go back to just wondering what their friendship was like before this moment, because when Holly shows up, he's so loyal to Harry Lyme and he's, and you wonder, is this a a true sense of friendship or a true uh, loyalty that comes from friendship? Or is he only clinging to that because uh, of the prospect of, of some kind of work or some kind of um, monetary gain? But it's, yeah, the subtext is, is the right word again. But definitely uh, a scene you can pull up and, and enjoy over and over. So maybe just to talk about the title, The Third Man. Great yeah. title. And uh, one that's been the uh, this countless uh, discussions have sprung from. So Matt, who do you think is the third man? It isn't <laughs> named in the movie. There's no clear indication of who the third man is and who's referred to in the title. Uh, so who do you think the third man is? Oh boy. That's a tough pick. I have two theories. I'm not yeah. sure if either one of them is even close to correct. First of all, I wonder to what extent is there is there no actual clear one answer to this, right? It could very well, well be. I don't, I don't think yeah, I don't think there is. I mean, you could apply that term to to several characters. I mean, initially it refers to this the other individual at the accident scene right and that's Cause would likely that's, be Harry Lyme yeah yeah so uh, I, I think ultimately it's referring to him but you could also say Holly Martins is the third man if if you're considering the other two men to be uh Major Calloway and uh Harry Lyme you know so he's kind of the third man uh thrown into the mix between the the hunter and the hunted but uh, yeah ultimately i think it refers to harry lime and that's probably the intent i have so one thought i have especially based on the fact that the initial conception of the story was to have all three men be british calloway uh, Mm -hmm. uh martins and lime to all be british i think maybe there's a sense to which calloway might be the third man because he's the one that kind of is in between these two you have on one hand the self-loathing of Martins, of Holly Martins, and then you have the self-assuredness and the smugness of Harry Lyme, and then right in the middle is Calloway, who has a certain righteousness about him. 
and is able mm-hmm. to navigate the world and sort of do something with it. So I, I wondered to what extent is he actually meant to be the third man uh, that's in between these two extremes uh, that we see on, on display. But then part of me also thinks maybe it's meant to be Harry Lime, but not the Harry Lime in, in reality, but rather the Harry Lime that is being conceived of both in Anna and in Holly's minds, because they both have this picture of him uh, that isn't quite who he is. And so they're talking to him, they, they talk about him, and they've conjured up this other man out there that isn't the real Harry Lime, but that's the one that they're in love with. That's the one that Anna treasures. That's the one that Holly is loyal to. But that man doesn't actually really exist. And so I wonder to what extent is it about this conception, the way we, we conceive of a person, and that person in the object of our mind is, is the third man. Yeah, you could take a metaphorical uh, stance on the meaning of that title. But that's one of the reasons why it's such a great title, because it is open to interpretation. But just the concept of appearance versus reality is, of course, a very central theme uh, to the film. And and certainly the, the idea that we can create an illusion, right, for, uh, for the safety of, of our own... To, to maintain our own preconceptions or to maintain our own wishes uh, about how we want another person or another situation to be. And the, uh, by the end of the film, all those, all those preconceptions or all those wishes are, are really discarded or, or laid bare for, for how false they are. Right. And, you know, the film just works as a solid entertainment as well as this very profound investigation, a thoughtful study of character, of theme, of culture. Uh, it works just greatly. And, uh, you know, we've, talk, we've spent a lot of time talking about Graham Greene, his work on this, uh, the actors, their work on it. But uh, hats off to Carol Reed. He directed a hell of a movie here. And, yeah. um, you know, the, part of the, well, I, I explained this to you before we spoke last time about Odd Man Out. Part of the reason why I chose this was as a follow-up to Odd Man Out because the two of them are so similar. Carol Reed directed both of them. Robert Krasker shot both of them. So there's a lot of uh, overlap there. They were both made in fairly short succession uh, with one another. Uh, but and it was hard. It was hard not to mention Third Man during that entire last episode. Yeah, I know. As we were having that episode, I thought, oh, maybe I kind of shouldn't have chosen just because it would have made that conversation different because we both were, I know, deliberately trying not to talk about the Third Man. Um, but I, I look at this as it's a great examination of how much Re, uh, Reed progressed as a director because the total imbalances that existed in the, in the first one, in Odd Man Out, are completely gone here. He mixes mordant humor with great suspense, with great cinematography. Surrealism flows almost just naturally out of this sense of documentary. I mean, it's just, he integrates things so much better here than he did just a couple years prior. And so you see the maturity that happened in him as a director and, and the ability for him to pull all the elements together. Also, I, admittedly, he's working with a much better script. That's, I was just going to say the same thing. So it, it helps to have a great script. But I think even then, in terms of what he was doing, it's a much better made film than Odd Man Out. Yeah, the script's much better. I mean, he had a, a much stronger starting point for sure. But even then, I think uh, it's not just out in, in the script. I mean, I think, of, for example, that at the end where they're they're setting up the sting for Harry Reid or Harry Harry Reid. 
wouldn't we all like to have a sting for Harry <laughs> Reid? Um, <laughs> so, no, uh, when the Harry Lime, right, they have the sting and they're all waiting, and then the guy comes in with uh, a balloon, right? The, the drunken balloon salesman comes in, and it works as both suspense, and then it turns around as... Uh, as a comedy, it's it's just interesting how he manages to make all those things work with the editing techniques and just the sound, the sound of the man's voice. We say balloon, it just, <laughs> it, but it doesn't sound weird. It's just it works perfectly. Uh, so it's very nicely done. Very nicely done. Yeah, <laughs> that's always been kind of an in joke between me and my brother. The the balloon, <laughs> the part always made me laugh. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good, but. It, we should probably mention, I mean, we kind of talked about the visuals, I guess, with our discussion on noir, but uh, we should mention Robert Krasker's contributions, too, and just how great this film looks. And the real locations, of course, make a big, uh, big contribution. Uh, I think we even talked about this before, but decay is just a very cinematic thing, and it's it's pretty hard to not use these visuals to the film's advantage but they're they're lit beautifully and of course the use of dutch angles is very distinctive in the film as well but visually just just a powerhouse it's one of those films that when you see it you just realize how great black and white cinematography can be i was thinking about this because um i think well logan is about to come out on blu-ray tomorrow uh, after we record this it's going to come out and there's a this retroactive bl- uh, black and white version they made of that movie, right? And yeah, what, what's the background there? Because I, I, I know they did that for Mad Max. Well, but- I see. Here's the thing. I think, so Miller wanted to do Mad Max Fury Road in black and white, and then just the demands of the, of the system, he did it in color. And then they went back and they did this black and white version, which I have not seen the black and white version uh, of Mad Max. Then uh, I'm guessing that this maybe got James Mangold a little excited, and I think every director kind of wants to do a black and white movie. So yeah. he, I'm sure, is just taking that lead and doing it with this. Now I look at just a few different clips of the Logan uh, release, and you realize just how you can't just go back and make something into black and white. Uh, you can't just make it into something that it wasn't. Right when a film is shot, really, really shot in black and white, it looks different. And this is one of the best examples of black and white cinematography that there is. It just looks so rich. And um, it makes you long for the days of black and white films. I wish that we had a lot more of them because it's so naturally cinematic. Uh, And, you know, I also think that, yeah, I mean, the the dark shadows, the way he shoots the the final chase scene is great. The editing also uh, should not be underestimated here in terms of just how disorienting it is. Uh, I can only imagine what that was like for the audiences of that day to try to navigate that because there's no real sense of geography in the final scene. It's just about how incredibly trapped and confused everybody is trying to find him in the in those uh, sewers. Yeah, it's very much about the sound design too. I mean, the sound design kind of provides much of the geography. I mean, it propels the characters in different directions based on on what they're hearing. So uh, that's that's something to mention, too. And on the point of sound, I'm just thinking here about the score. Uh, One of the most famous uh, and noticeable, memorable scores that has ever been. Uh, I'll be honest. 
I'm a little mixed on it. I know some people just love it and think it's the greatest thing. I think there are some times where it's very, very effective. I think at the very end, it's effective. Uh, I think that it has a certain melancholy to it. The the score by Anton Karas with the zither is very effective in moments, but there are a lot of times where it does feel out of place, and I think they either there should have been any score or they should have tried something else or added another musical instrument into it. What are your thoughts on the score? I'm fine with it. I mean, it, it can become a little grating sometimes uh, because it is it is a theme that you even hear played on its own a fair amount if you're if you're listening to a collection of of great film themes but i think it adds to the film and it does have a kind of a mournful quality especially uh, you mentioned the end and i think the intent was to just create a distinctive sound for a distinctive environment and in that way it does succeed well matt this is uh I've been released a few times by the Criterion Collection. Uh, there was the initial DVD they put out in 99. They then redid it uh, in 2007 on DVD with a two-disc set, and then that two-disc set was released again and on Blu-ray a year later. Uh, which uh, edition do you have of the movie? So I have the, the two-disc DVD reissue. Unfortunately, I missed out on the Blu-ray. I wasn't buying Blu-rays at that time. But that commands a pretty high price at this point. Yeah, it's now all out of print uh, from the Criterion. So if you want it, you're going to go on the black market. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah, Yeah. no, I'm not willing to cough up 150 bucks for uh, a Blu-ray of this movie. As much as I love it, I'm also trying to be somewhat realistic uh, about the fact that it's not worth 150 bucks. But I I have the same thing. I have the two-disc DVD. Uh, It looks great. Uh, I watched it again for this uh, conversation, and uh, it looks really solid. Uh, It holds up well as a a transfer. Uh, Great, great box art. Uh, The the photo gallery they have, the cover art they've got for it, really, really nice. I love this particular release of it. Uh, And I think a pretty good collection of extras, I will say. I thought the commentaries, uh, there's two of them, one by your man Steven Soderbergh and Tony Gilroy. Yes. It was a little bit it's a good, disappointing. It's a good track. I thought it was disappointing. I, I liked it. I mean, it's it's a solid track. I, I enjoyed it. I guess I didn't, I didn't see anything other than... It just seemed a lot of their conjecture. It didn't, I didn't see any real sense of how did this influence them as filmmakers, which is what I was hoping for. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not a scholarly track. It's, it's kind of like a couple of film, film fans uh, just pointing out things they liked about it. And I mean, God knows I, I, we I, do not need two guys sitting around talking about how they like a movie. I know. Jeez. Well, get I a mean, life. How, how, you guys? How, self, how self-absorbed can you be? Uh, like the world um, needs to know what you think about a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to be careful how we criticize them, I suppose. Yes. But yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's not like a, uh, Again, it's not a scholarly track. I, I do think Soderbergh tries to bring uh, a little more historical context than, uh, than he does. A nice does, job, but yeah. yeah, yeah. So you could see that he he puts some more effort in, ter- in terms of preparing. Uh, but I, I think Soderbergh, in, in general, Soderbergh does pretty good commentary tracks, especially when he does tracks on other people's films. I found, uh, but it's worth a listen. I mean, it's not not great but it's it's worthwhile i like the commentary track they had a second one by dana poland the film scholar 
And he, he does a nice job. He really points out some interesting details. Um, sometimes it gets a little bit into the weeds, I thought, but overall I thought it was good. And I got to tell you, I, I loved listening to the reading of Graham Greene's treatment. You know, he wrote... He wrote it first as a novella to help him write yeah. the screenplay, and then the novella was subsequently published. Uh, but to hear it, just the reading of that uh, was very, very neat. It was an abridged version, but I thought it was, I think that's a neat little treat for this particular release. So, uh, I don't know any other uh, highlights from the special features that you wanted to single out. Uh, not really. I mean, I, I think it's a nice set. I'm glad I have the DVD at least, even though I mean before it went on a print just have access to those features uh, we should mention though that there is a, a new 4k restoration out there of uh, of the film that hasn't been released in region one but there are some uh, releases in europe that are region free so in theory there's a better transfer out there than even the uh, criterion blu-ray so if people do want to find a, a superior uh, copy of the film it, it, it's out there and it, it's not going to command you know, $150 or more. Right. But then you're not buying it on the black market. Yeah. Well, I guess if you're truly devoted to the film, you're going, if you want to show your love for Harry Lime, you'll buy this on the black market. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So no, it's, I mean, I thought the, the, the features are good. I don't know that they're great. Nothing really stands out. Uh, but I did like, there's a pretty good, um, uh, a documentary on Graham Greene and just talking about him and him having a lot of selections of his own speaking about himself and his own work uh, that's really, really worth listening to anybody who's a Graham Greene fan. I actually showed this movie once to a, a good friend of mine who is a, a literary-minded uh, man and uh, quite familiar with Graham Greene's work, and he was just in love with the movie and noticing all sorts of connections to Graham Greene's writing that I wouldn't necessarily have picked up on. So uh, mm. it's worth uh, getting to know a little bit more about Graham Greene. I think that helps flesh out this film a little bit more for people as well. And it was also neat to see the alternate opening of the of the U.S. version with Joseph Cotton doing the opening narration, which yeah. I have to be honest, you got to go, what the hell were they thinking? He's <laughs> narrating it and talking about meeting Holly Martins, but he plays Holly Martins. And you go, what is going on here? So... It's a very interesting decision that they made on the U.S. release there. So, so Matt, uh, to close out here for tonight, uh, what are your thoughts? Does the third man belong in the Criterion Collection? That would be a yes. Yeah, There's what else is there to say? Of course it's a yes. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's it's pretty hard to articulate the greatness of this film. So if you haven't seen it, you should see it. Couldn't say it better myself. Well, thank you, Matt. We've made it now. We have completed a full year of podcasts. How do you like that? That's, there you go. There's a feather in your cap. I, uh, you know, I'll be honest. I I figured by this point in time, um, you know, you would have given up because you'd have figured that you could do better than talking to me every month about this, but uh, you haven't figured (laughs) it out yet. So we're we're still going to go, I guess. Well, it's it's called a lack of options, Nate. (laughs) Well, in that case, then we will continue on and start our second year of the podcast discussing La Promesse by Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardin. Thank you all for listening. Have a great night.